0: I've actually grown to love this huge pulpit Bible as we've recorded these services and I've been able to worship with my wife on Sunday mornings to see visually that we are bound to the word of God. Uh, There is something in that that just resonates with the soul and with our text this morning. For we are sanctified by the word of God that is expressed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to work through the whole chapter, but to begin, we'll just read the first paragraph of it as Jesus begins his prayer. After this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Before the world began. Heavenly Father, as we come to this prayer, before we get to the part where Jesus prayed for the disciples and even for us, we are caught up into a plan that is eternal, that began before the foundations of the world, the purpose for which Christ came, and that is to redeem us from our sin and out of a fallen world, to take us to be with Him forever. In the glorious dwelling place of God in heaven, and that heaven will come to earth and a new heaven and a new earth, and this world will be made perfect once again. But Lord, I pray that while we now live in this fallen world and we're distressed at what we look around and see, I pray that we would be encouraged by the prayer of Jesus, even for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard me say from time to time that Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for you specifically. This is the passage that it comes from. But do you know what it is that Jesus prayed for you? Wouldn't you think that that's important? Doesn't that capture your interest, that you would know what Jesus prayed for you? And this was the last night before Jesus went to the cross. The setting for this is Jesus has been with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he left there, he said, at the end of chapter 14, come, let us leave. And they're walking through the gardens and he's still teaching them. And he stops and prays. It's hard to figure out where this fits with the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane because the Synoptic Gospels tell us different things about these last hours of Jesus' life. And yet, I think that we have clues that we don't have to be dogmatic about, but that we can understand, this is what I think. At the beginning of chapter 18, it says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. If you look at a map of Jerusalem, you'll see that the upper room, the place where Jesus met for the Last Supper with his disciples, was on the Temple Mount. The Kidron Valley, then, is between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane is across the Kidron Valley at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus left with his disciples, was teaching them along the way, using the illustration of the vine and the branches that we looked at last week. He was talking about leaving them and leaving them in the world. And he stops and prays for them. There's something very special in this passage in verse 13 when Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. This is a prayer that Jesus deliberately expressed in the presence of his disciples that they would hear him and be encouraged. After he finishes this prayer, he crosses the Kidron Valley. and He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he withdraws. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he goes off into a more intimate and private prayer with the Father where he struggles. He's in agony. He prays, sweating drops of blood to the ground, saying, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. That's a part of the difficulty when people try to pushed together and matched these two prayers, the one in John and the one in the Synoptic Gospels. But John made it no secret that Jesus was troubled on this night. Back in chapter 12, Jesus said that he was troubled in spirit. Later, when, Judas was, when Jesus said that Judas would betray him, he said that he was troubled in spirit. Jesus knew what was coming And the closer he got, he was resolute, he was determined, and he expresses that in this prayer. But I understand, and I think you can too, that the closer you get to that hard event, the more the trouble boils over. So he prays in front of his disciples now, his prayer for himself and for us. He goes on the cross to the place where he will be arrested, and he, he draws back. And he prays that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. That doesn't undermine his resolution. He always prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be thine. So, all the more we should pray attention to this prayer. This is climactic. If you knew that you were going to die in the next few hours, and you gathered your family around, and you prayed to God for yourself and for them, Wouldn't you hope that they would pay attention to what you were praying for them? This would be the most important thing on your heart. So we're studying Jesus' prayer. And this prayer is an expression of Jesus' greatest concerns. First, we find Jesus praying for himself. Father, the time has come. Now, we've been saying for the last uh, several weeks that we've reached the turning point, the hour has come. The ESV, by the way, I'm reading from the NIV. I always encourage you to read from a couple of translations of the Bible. The ESV is better in several circumstances in this chapter than the NIV. I love it that the ESV says the hour has come. It's not general. It's the specific. It's a point in time. The hour has come. But you say, you've been saying that for several weeks, but that's not hard to understand. I used this as an illustration when we first talked about it in my, in my own wedding day. Well, I remember from home, it, you're thinking at least, the time has come. It's time to go to the church. And then we went to the church and we got dressed in the church. And then the, the time has come to go to the door of the sanctuary. And then at the door, the time had come to walk through into the wedding. It's all the same thing. It's just that... Uh, approaching time, and, and Jesus says the, the hour has come, glorify your sign. Now Jesus is not praying, Father, let me bypass the cross and just go straight back to heaven. He knows that the pathway for him to, to the heavenly glory that he lived in before the foundations of the world is through the cross. It's more like Todd Beamer in Flight uh, United Flight 93, when uh, he, he wrote the book about uh, the 9-11 events. Some of you who are 19 years old or less have to remember this as history. The rest of us know it by where we were when this happened. On that morning when the Twin Towers were hit, and these people on this Flight 93 heard about the Twin Towers, and they knew that this was a suicide mission for this airplane. And they began to, to talk with each other about what they could do. And a group of them determined to rush the terrorists and try to gain control of the the cockpit. And that's indeed what they did. And there's that uh, line when the time had come, the hour had come, and Todd Beamer said, let's roll. God the Son is saying to God the Father, let's roll. It's time to do it. He was resolute and he was determined and he saw the cross as his glory. For that is where he did the work of our redemption. He bore the wrath of God for sin in our place. He accomplished what he came to do. That was his glory. And death could not hold him. So he, yes, God raised him from the dead. Yes, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God in the glory that he existed, that he existed in before the earth began but he was glorified on that cross because that's where he did the work. Verse 2, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is an expression of Jesus' greatest concern. This is what he wants the most. How many people dismiss the gospel and dismiss the church by saying something like, you just talk about heaven, and you're no good here. We look at a fallen world, and we are distressed this week, and we are called to be salt and light in the world. We are called to go out and and show the love of Christ. But this world will continue as a fallen world until Christ comes again. We should show the love of Christ, not in order that we make this world a better place in which we like to live, but in order to show the love of Christ to glorify God, to sacrifice ourselves, to do what Christ did for us, to show that we're not about ourselves, we're about others. We love others the way Christ has loved us so that they can come to to know the Savior we have come to know. The highest purpose is that the doors of heaven would be opened through faith in Jesus Christ and they be granted eternal life. This is what Jesus came to do. It's what he came to accomplish. It's what he came to give. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. What is that eternal life? Is it just an abstract place where we get everything we want? No. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Not that, you, that they may know about you, that they may know about Christ. As we looked at in, in chapter 15, that we would know God, that we would abide in him, and he in us through the Spirit, in the name of Christ, be reconciled to the Father and made children of God. We'll pick up on that in just a moment when we come to the name of God. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth, By completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. In Jesus' mind, he seems to divide his earthly ministry as prelude, preamble. He's completed that work, everything he came to do in his earthly ministry, but now this is the big deal. Now, glorify me in your presence. When Jesus looked at the cross, he endured the cross for the glory set before him. He knew that the cross was his pathway to glory. When God calls on you to sacrifice, whether it's by loving a spouse that doesn't love you in return, whether it's by uh, loving your children when they reject you, or parents when they didn't love you the way they should have, whether it's someone who's hurt you in your work or in your church, when God calls you to sacrifice, when we go out into our community and we, we hear the cultural divides, we hear the conflicts, we are called to show the love of Christ. We might not know what that looks like, how to make it work. We, we struggle with how to fix the fallen world, but we're not to go out as the ones who are the, the critics. Now, we can be constructive. We can try to come up with solutions as husband and wife, as parents, as church people going out into the world. We can try to figure things out to be peacemakers. We really can't. But God calls on us to pick up our cross to follow Christ. We're the ones to make the sacrifice instead of, I will love you if you love me. It's such a huge difference. That's what Jesus did for us. He said, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Mary and I were reading this together. and She said she remembers when she was a uh, a young girl hearing her grandmother tell stories about when her grandmother was a child. And it, for the first time, occurred to Mary, there was life before I was born. There were things that happened. The world doesn't really revolve around me. There were lots of things that happened my grandma. Grandmother was a little girl. Well, guess what? There was a whole life in eternity in the Godhead between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. They had glory and love and fellowship with one another. And they determined by the initiative of God the Father through the agency of the Son and the power of the Spirit to create all that there is and to make us his people. There was life before. There was glory that Jesus enjoyed and that he left to do this awful, awesome work of redemption. So that's what Jesus prays. That's, That's the gospel. That should be our main heart, our main desire that what Jesus did comes to bear on all the world that we would be a part of the gathering in of those that the Father has given to the Son. So we turn to Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And here the prayer for his disciples is referring to the 12 that is now reduced to 11. In this prayer, Jesus will acknowledge that there's one that was never one of his own. The one that was doomed to perdition, to use those terms. Judas' heart was never given to Christ. He participated. The other disciples didn't see it, but... He showed his true colors in the end. Well, let's look at this prayer because here's where we find the answer. What did Jesus pray? You might think he goes straight into petitions. He doesn't. There are a whole lot of statements in this prayer. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. That's a statement. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Or well, where do these come from? When did this happen? We read in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children. What do adopted children take on for themselves? It's the name of their father and their mother. They're in the family. Remember that. That becomes very important in this passage. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Up to this point in Jesus' prayer, it sounds more like a report, but Jesus is saying this out loud because he wants his disciples to hear that he knows their faith. He knows they have received him. He knows they have received and believed in him and in his word. He is affirming them in this report to the heavenly father in prayer. And he's doing this for them. And there'll be an echo of it that this is not only for them, but for us as well. Verse 9, I pray for them. Oh, finally, we're going to get to what he prays. No, not yet. First, he says what he's not praying for. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Boy, I wonder if we just lifted this from the Bible and attributed it to a preacher and posted it on the the web and said, I'm not praying for the world, but for the church. He'd be blasted because it's so Selfish. You just can't accuse Jesus of being selfish when he's right about to go to the cross. So don't take it that way. Jesus is saying that these things he's about to pray are things that will be in effect in the lives of those who put their hope and trust in him because God the Father has chosen them and by the Holy Spirit has worked in them a faith to trust in Jesus. This prayer is actually accomplished in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. It goes on in verse 10, All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. That's amazing, right? There are more statements. We haven't gotten to the petition. Did you know that glory comes to Christ through you as you uh, trust in him, as you obey him, as you sacrifice yourself, showing his love for others, as you uh, respond in the way he calls you to, to be and to do? That brings glory to Christ. Wow, Jesus is saying this in the disciples' presence. You you know that if they were slouching in the darkness and and, and, and the terror of what was about to happen, you'd start sitting up straighter. I can glorify Christ by loving him and obeying him. I bring glory to him. Do you know that? Do you live with the consciousness of that? Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. This is a theme that has been developed over the last several chapters. It's why the disciples were troubled that Jesus was leaving. And he's acknowledging in prayer to his Heavenly Father that he is going to leave them, and he's going to leave them in the world. Now he comes to the petition. The NIV says it this way, it translates it this way. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. First, let's pick up that issue of your name. We've already set the foundation, laid the foundation for that. We bear the name of God through the Lord Jesus Christ because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, sealing it to us because we're adopted as children of God. As adopted children, we bear his name. That name gives it gives uh, rights and privileges. We are forgiven. We are atoned for. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It gives, it gives power of uh, the Holy Spirit to, to will and to do God's pleasure. That, that's the power of the name. But there is an exegetical issue here that I need to, to play out for you. The ESV actually goes in the other road Uh, D.A. Carson, the commentary that I've been using uh, most uh, for this study, lays out both different interpretations of uh, the Greek words, which actually simply say, keep them in your name. That's what the ESV translates. Keep them in your name. The NIV says, protect them by the power of your name. The NIV is, is going down the road saying, it's the power of your name that protects them, And protects them from the evil one. There's a little bit different sense that's possible when you just keep them in your name. It's not by your name. It's keep them in your name. Keep them in the family. Protect, preserve them. Not from the afflictions and the assaults of the devil. But from being peeled off. From being taken away. Preserve them. Keep them in your name. And I believe that this is the right road to go down with this. So I'm preaching from the NIV, going with the ESV, and hope it stays clear to you that Jesus prayed for you, that Heavenly Father, as you have given them to me, I am redeeming them and paying paying for their sins. Keep them. Preserve them. Enable them to persevere to the end as yours and mine. They're in the family. They bear your name. Believe that's what he's saying. Hey, how reassuring it is, because this is the same Savior that said, no one can snatch them from my hand. He said of the Father, no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Jesus' prayer is answered here. But if we get it wrong, we can begin to think that Jesus is praying that God would protect us from the evil world around us in the next few verses it might it might sound more like that in verse 12 while i was with them i kept them The he says protect, i kept them and guarded them safe by that name you gave me none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled That phrase, doomed to destruction, is used of Satan, too. The the doomed has the sense of he didn't have a chance. He wanted to, but he didn't have a chance. That's not what it means. It means he never really wanted to. His heart was never really with Christ. And Jesus knew that. It wasn't that he failed with one person. He was not one of the ones that the Father gave to him. Jesus chose him to be one of his disciples, that he would be betrayed and handed over. He brought the unbelieving world into his own band, to accomplish the will of God. It's amazing how God can use the afflictions that we have to accomplish his will in our lives. He did in the life of Jesus himself. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. We began with that verse. Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So Jesus' prayer is not for the world, and his prayer is not that we'd be taken out of the world, but, as the NIV says, that you would protect them from the evil one. The only problem with that phrasing is this. We might think it means he will protect us from the afflictions brought on us by the evil one. But picture this with Job. Picture God the Son, in that heavenly place, praying to God the Father as Satan comes with his accusations against Job and says, Job doesn't love you, God. He loves your blessings. And the son says, Father, keep him in your name. And the father says, that's what I'm going to do. And he turns to Satan and says, go ahead, take away all the blessings. You see, you can't fit that in to to protect him from the afflictions of the evil one it's preserve him as one of our own. That's the point. And God allowed Satan to take away the blessings to show that Job's heart was the Lord's, that he was God's own son. And it vanquished, discredited Satan from all the heavenly place and his accusations. That's the answer to Jesus' prayer. So when God allows affliction into your life and into mine, we shouldn't be saying, God, you Jesus, pray for our protection. Why don't you answer his prayer? It's no. God, hold me to yourself. Hold me to yourself. That's the prayer. They're not of this world, even as I am not of it. When we come to the second petition, the first one is keep them in your name, preserve them in the family. The second one is sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. That means to be made holy, to be set apart for holy purpose by the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is God's word. Jesus is God's word, and the Bible is about Jesus. We are not uh, formless and void in what we believe. Sincerity is not the most important thing. It's important. But the truth that we believe in needs to be God's word, his truth, because that's what sanctifies us. That's what calls us to follow our Savior to the cross where we repent of our sins, receive him as Savior, and then follow him through this wilderness and and try to respond in our fallen, faltering ways until he takes us all the way to glory uh, in heaven in the life to come. Verse 19, "For for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now Jesus wasn't sinful and then had to be sanctified. He's just saying, My whole being and life is set apart and devoted to this redeeming work that I'm about to do on the cross. I do this for them. I sanctify myself for them that they too may be truly made holy, sanctified, set apart for us, Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is praying. Then he extends this prayer to all believers. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. Now here's where I think some people make a mistake. What is that prayer? The prayer is the prayer that Jesus just expressed for his disciples. He's saying the same prayer I pray for all who would believe in me through their message. So we have to go back, not just ahead. We go back to say Jesus prayed for you and for me, that we would be kept in his name, that he would preserve us as his own in his family and that he would sanctify us by the word. The end result, then, is unity. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. If you don't see the unity, the oneness that we have as fellow believers in Jesus Christ as the result of God preserving us in his name, in his family, adopting us as his children, and sanctifying us by his word, if we don't see it as the result, We can see unity as the external end-all that somehow we just need to go out and hold hands with everybody that professes to be a Christian, whether or not they hold to the gospel or not, whether or not they're being obedient to God's word or not. Paul would have a hard time with the Judaizers if somebody were pressing on him. What a shame. How can you witness to Christ when you are castigating those who would change the gospel and, and give them a different word of Christ? Paul said, that's wrong. It's well, Division in the church. Yes, there's gonna be division in the church. There's division in the church because not everybody holds to the word of God. The biggest divide in the church is not between those who, who are committed to Christ and committed to his word. There are many denominations, many Christians that are committed to Christ and committed to his word and we have an essential unity with them even if we disagree over small things. And We ought to be able to make that tangible. We ought to be able to show that. But there's a church that turns away from the word of God and still professes to be following Christ when they're really following their own ways. And that is not a kind of unity that we want to have, that we would join with those who would walk away from from God's word because we're sanctified by the word of God. That's what Jesus prayed. And Jesus goes on with the rest of his prayer, praying for this uh, result in unity that we together as the body of Christ committed to Christ and committed to his word would take this gospel to all the world remember the beginning of the prayer for you gave me authority to give over all people to give eternal life we are his ambassadors to take this gospel to all people this is where the unity of Christ breaks down the dividing walls of hostility that are out there in the in the world I don't have a lot of hope for the world getting along with each other, but I do have a lot of hope for Christians, that we can come together and see the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus in each of us. Even if we have different ideas, different uh, solutions, different practical applications, different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we love the Lord and love his word, then there's something we recognize in each other. And the dividing walls of hostility are broken down the end result after we take this gospel to all the world and move forward to verse 24 father i want those you have given me to be with me where i am this goes back to the comfort in the beginning of john 14 he says do not let your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe also in me and he goes to talk about how he's going to prepare a place for us and coming back for us that we may be with him where he is. He's coming back to take the whole bride of Christ to eternal life. It's good to get along with other Christians now because you're going to spend forever with them. It'll be easier because we'll all be made perfect then. But that's what Jesus is doing. It's what he's accomplishing. And there's something intimate and loving in this. He just wants, he wants us to be with him where he is and to see his glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I'm in verse 25, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. They, the disciples, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself, myself may be in them. You see how all these chapters weave together? Chapter 19, the vine and the branches, abide in me and I in you. There are two primary fruits from being in Christ and him being in us, of being sanctified by the truth, being preserved in his body. And Those fruits are first that the love of Christ would dwell in us and that his joy would be fulfilled in us. I am so glad that Jesus prayed this prayer where his disciples could hear it. He prayed it that their joy may be full because it reminds me of the joy and the love that we have in Christ. When I look at the world, I sink and I'm distressed. We have a gospel that we can take out to the world. We are called to take it out to the world so that human beings with their human nature can be changed and regenerated, and they can discover the love and the joy that we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Savior prayed for us in this way. When we see him in his humility, as he's going to the cross, praying with this resolution, this commitment to do this work for us, We are assured, we are astounded at the amazing love he has for us. And he calls us, as he calls us, to be sanctified by your word. I pray that we would uh, be renewed in our commitment to know not just portions of your Bible, not just our favorite passages, but that we would know the whole counsel of God, that we would be shaped and changed by it into true followers of Christ in whom The Holy Spirit dwells and brings Christ to live in us. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen.